The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. It is so good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, it's an honor to spend this time considering God's Word together. So let's hear from the words of our Lord. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, and we are finishing, actually, uh, Jesus' addresses to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So we'll do our last one today, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Let's hear the words of our Lord. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see." Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together and ask for help as we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, how much we need you. Lord Jesus, how much we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to come even now and open this Word to us. Lord, let us not be pitiable, poor, wretched, blind, naked in your sight. Let us be clothed with Christ, who he is and what he's done. And Lord, we pray for our church. We pray, Lord, that in these times, you would hold us together. You would fill us with love for you, love for one another. Lord, conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. And even as we hear his words right now, Let them ring out, Lord, and I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would preach a better sermon than I could ever preach to each one uh, of the hearts and minds listening. Lord, speak your word to us, apply it to us, show us what you have for each one of us uh, as we listen to what you've said. We thank you for your word, we thank you for this time, we thank you for your promise that your word never goes out in vain. And we cling to that promise even now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are on the last of Jesus' dresses to these seven churches in Asia Minor. We remember they were 
real, literal, actual churches with their own context, their own challenges. But we also remember there's seven of them. And even as we heard this morning, at the end of each address, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each letter to each church is for all churches. Uh, for all the time in between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return. Each letter is for us. So there's a few things I want to remind us of that we've seen from these letters, kind of sum up major lessons from these letters for us. First of all, um, tribulation can be expected, and the call through that is faithfulness. Tribulation can be expected, and the call through that is faithfulness. So we know that um, in this time between Jesus' ascension and his return, um, tribulation will occur. Difficulty will come. It's not easy, but it is normal, and our call through it is faithfulness. Will we hold to our Lord's word, and will will we be loyal to his name, who he is, and what he's done? The second thing we we see is that many times the church will look horribly flawed. Think of this. Out of seven letters to the churches, only two of the seven churches get away without any serious rebuke from Jesus. Only two of the seven. Uh, Five of the seven are flawed and deeply so. There's bad teaching in the churches that claim to be Christian but isn't. There's bad behavior that denies Jesus and those who claim to love him. So it's something to realize how challenging it will be for the church to be faithful through tribulation. It's humongous pressure from our culture to follow the party line in cultural idolatry, cultural behavior. And many times the church will look awful. May it not be so of us. But third then, the issue is who we worship. The issue is who we worship. Um, Why is it, do you think, that every single address from Jesus to his churches begins with a declaration of who he is? There's a reason for that. Um, When we see him as beautiful, we will follow him faithfully. We've got to see him for who he is. The issue is worship. We remember here, Everyone worships. The issue isn't whether you will worship. No, the issue is who you will worship and by what standard. So again, these churches face pressure to participate in the idolatry of their culture, of their cities. And we know very well that 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 same pressure is true for us. You don't need to to have a statue to be an idolater. No, idolatry is just when we take something good God has made, Put that thing in God's place and then look to something other than God to give us what only God can give. And so idolatry will be revealed in disobedience to Jesus because we'll be obeying someone else. We'll be obeying the one we worship. The reason I bring all this up is that the issue here for faithfulness through tribulation is what we love. That's the issue. The issue for faithfulness through tribulation is what we love the most. Uh, I want to remind you of this parable Jesus told in the Gospel of Matthew. Look at Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, 44. 
There, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, um, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, this amazingly is a picture of conversion, isn't it? And it's the idea that this person, in finding Jesus, has found a new and great, what did Jesus call it? Treasure. He's found a new and great treasure. He is overwhelmed with the value of who Jesus is. And then, what happens to all his other treasures now? He's willing to sell all that he has all those other treasures in order to have this greatest treasure. And treasure is about what we love, isn't it? It's about what we love. It's about what we want. And so we're seeing here this picture of conversion. Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done in his kingdom becomes our greatest treasure. And that demotes all other treasures. To become a Christian is to have your loves changed. It's to have your loves changed transformed. And so the ultimate question for living faithfully through tribulation is this, is Jesus and what he's done your greatest treasure? Is Jesus and his gospel that which you love the most? If he is, you'll be faithful despite the cost. And in a way, you won't be able to help it because you love him the most. If he's not, you won't. Because we always follow and serve what we worship. We always devote ourselves to our greatest loves. The reason I'm beginning uh, this sermon this way is because in our text this morning, Jesus speaks to a church that looks just like their culture. He speaks to a church that looks just like their city. And the reason they don't stand out as belonging to him, the reason they're identical with their city and their culture is the issue of their treasure. They're no different than their culture because their loves are no different than the loves of their culture. Jesus is not their highest treasure. In fact, he's become something like an afterthought. He's become something like a middleman who exists only to get them that which they really want. And that's what makes this scenario so dangerous, is as this church seems to have what it treasures, and it's smug about it, self-satisfied about it. Friends, do you realize that the worst thing that can happen to you is that you would love the wrong things and then get what you want? The worst thing that can happen to you is that you would love the wrong things then get what you want. Read Romans 1 later on today. This is God's judgment. When we don't want him, we want the wrong things, and sometimes God says, fine, go ahead. Have the wrong things. Love the wrong things. And Terrifyingly, that's what's happening to this church. They love wealth and comfort. They have wealth and comfort. And so they feel like they have it all together. They feel like they need nothing. They feel like they're rich. And yet Jesus says they're nearly to the point where they no longer have Jesus at all. He's an outsider. He's been forgotten. The issue with this church in being just like their culture is that their loves are just like their culture's loves. 
So by God's grace, I don't think we're exactly identical to them. I hope not. Uh, but we certainly need to learn from them. So let's remember that sevenfold pattern that we've seen in all of these addresses from Jesus to his churches. Number one, each address always starts with a de- declaration of who Jesus is. That's no different uh, here in our text this morning. And as always, it's all important. Second, all the churches hear about the knowledge of Jesus. He's the one who sees us as we are and can tell us where we're at. Number three, most churches get some encouragement from Jesus. Unfortunately, not so much this one this morning. Fourth, most churches get a rebuke from Jesus. There's something he's calling them to change. Five, all churches receive a calling from Jesus. It's this exhortation, encouragement on how they ought to follow him. Six, most churches get a consequence from Jesus. The consequence always pertains to the rebuke. If you you won't listen to Jesus on his rebuke, this consequence is what will occur. And seventh, all churches receive a promise from Jesus for those who conquer. There's great reward for following Christ. He is infinitely worth it. So as we begin to dive into our text this morning, first let's just have a little background on the city of Laodicea because it's important for interpreting what happens later. The city of Laodicea had everything and was pretty self-satisfied about it. Uh, Like the church in Philadelphia, remember last week we talked about how Philadelphia endured this massive earthquake, their city was broken down and they had to rely on Rome to rebuild them. Laodicea experienced a humongous earthquake as well. But unlike Philadelphia, Laodicea refused Roman help. They said, we have enough wealth to do it ourselves. We're self-sufficient and proud of it. And they rebuilt their own city. Moreover, the city of Laodicea was famous for its economy. It's a prominent center of banking and commerce. It's known for its textile production, including this dark-colored wool. It even had a medical school and produced an eye salve that was widely desired medicinally. The city seemed to have everything, but there was just one thing they were lacking. It was their water supply. Their water supply left so much to be desired. In contrast, there's a place called Hierapolis, six miles to the north. They had hot springs known for their medicinal value. Colossa, 10 miles to the east, had pure drinking water from a mountain stream. But Laodicea had neither. The water of their river valley was bad. And there was even an effort to channel some of the water from those hot springs into their city. But its system was not effective. It left this result that was nauseating, undrinkable. And so we really do here meet a church that looks just like its culture. This church thinks it's intelligent, self-sufficient, wealthy, comfortable, and they're even a little smug about it, a little self-satisfied. And Jesus says, you are just like your culture Because you taste just like your city's water. And shockingly, Jesus says, he's about to gag. Why is this the case? It's because they love exactly what their culture loves. So let's dive in now to the declaration. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
What is Jesus saying here? I wanna sum it up for you before we try to explain it all. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to this, truth, to this church, I'm the truth about treasure. I'm the truth about treasure. Now let's unpack this a little. Jesus says, the words of the amen. So what did Jesus just call himself? The amen. Now, most of us, I think, we say amen when we pray, right? In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, why do you do that? And you're thinking, well, I don't know. That's the way they did it in Sunday school, right? That's what my mom taught me to do. Well, amen means so be it. May it come to pass. Amen means, you know what? God's promises will certainly occur for God's people. Amen means God hears us. He receives us. He works for us. He's going to come through for us. He's good to us. And here Jesus says, I am the amen. That's why we say in the name of Jesus, Amen. The reason we know God's going to keep his promises to us and and we're a part of his people and he's going to come through for us is because we have Christ. He is God's truth fulfilled. He brings God's promises to fruition. The treasure of God's kindness towards his people is bought by Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.20. 2 Corinthians 1.20, this is what Paul said. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. All of God's promises are yes for God's people because of Christ. Paul says that's why it's through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. God is glorified in the faithfulness of Christ to and for us so that in Christ we receive all of God's promises. That's why I say Jesus is the truth about treasure. He's the one who assures that the treasure of God's promises will be experienced by God's people. Moreover, as the faithful witness, Jesus reveals the truth. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. Friends, you realize we can't even know the deepest, most important truth about life without Jesus. He is truly God, the revelation of the Father. In Jesus, we learn the story of the universe, why we're here, where things are going, how to enjoy a happy ending. In fact, Jesus paid the ultimate price to reveal that truth to us. He became human to live the truth and tell the truth before our eyes. And he was a faithful witness to God's truth, even to death. Why is this so important for the church in Laodicea to hear? Why is it so important for us to hear? What do you do with a faithful witness? You listen to him. (laughs) You listen to him. Look Look at how committed he is to the truth. Look at how he is the truth. Look at how he's the amen to God's truth. Jesus is saying to this church who does not know how to value treasure, listen to me. I'm the truth about treasure. In fact, Jesus says, I'm the beginning of God's creation. I'm the beginning of God's creation. What does that mean? It means that the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done is what brings true 
life. When Jesus says he's the beginning of God's creation, he's thinking of his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead to bring God's new creation. We can only scratch the surface here on the newness Jesus brings. But when you repent of your sins and you trust in him due to what he's done in his death and resurrection, you have a new creation of a new heart. You're a part of his kingdom. You have, a, you have a new standing as righteous, child of God, given the righteousness of Christ. You have a new mind to love and know Jesus' truth. You have a new future where you will be in a new resurrected body to enjoy a new creation forever. Look at what Paul said in Colossians 1.18 about Jesus. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's reconciled all things to himself. And one day we will see the fulfillment of that. He did it through his cross and resurrection. That's why he's the firstborn of the dead. So do you see here why I would say that Jesus is the truth about treasure? I mean, you want to think of treasure. Um, do the treasures on this earth in this life really last? Why is it the things we, we love and that we need are, are next weekend's garage sale? And, and even the curse of death, right? Everything you treasure in this life, what's, what's going to happen to it? You're going to lose it. You know what ultimate treasure would be? It's to be part of the new creation. It's to, it's to know Jesus intimately. It's to know that you'll be in his new heavens and new earth with him in your new body before his, faith with his, before his face with his people forever. Is there a greater treasure than that? Store up treasures in heaven, Jesus says. And so Jesus is saying to this church who has their treasures all mixed up, I'm the truth about treasure. I'm the amen. I'm the one who gets you God's promises. I'm the faithful witnesses. I'm telling you the truth. I'm the firstborn. I'm the beginning of God's creation. I'm the ultimate treasure. And so this blind, helpless, naked church that thinks it's rich, but is actually so poor, needs to listen to Jesus. And so do we. Now we see verse 15 where Jesus says, I know, I know your works. You know, I was reminded here, so much of Revelation is about revealing the truth that lurks underneath external appearances. Revealing the truth that lurks underneath external appearances. There's so many ways this book does that with symbolism and the like. But just a couple examples. We remember the Church of Philadelphia. We looked at that church last week. Externally, they seem small, meaningless, they have no real power. But what does Jesus see about them? They're faithful. They're one of the only churches that doesn't get a rebuke. They're pillars in his kingdom. Jesus knows the truth that goes deeper than external appearances. Uh, the other side of the coin, there was the church in Sardis. Remember, they had a reputation for being alive. A church is apparently thriving and famous and successful. Jesus says, I know the truth about you. You're pretty much dead. It's the same thing with this truth, with this church, 
this morning, Laodicea. They think they have everything. They need nothing. They're intelligent. They're rich. They're self-sufficient. Jesus says, I know the truth. You're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus knows. And that's so important here because in his kindness to us, Jesus will often let us know what we don't and need to about our condition before him. Are you brave enough to pray, Jesus, show me what I don't see about how I'm failing you? Show me what I don't see. Let me know what you know, because it's his love, isn't it? You know, if Jesus was totally done with his church, he'd quit talking to them. But he rebukes those he loves. And the kindest thing he can do sometimes is tell us the truth that he knows and we don't. Well, there's no encouragement for this church here, so we get straight to the rebuke. Verses 15 to 16, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. So what is Jesus saying? In my experience, this text is one of those notoriously easy ones to misinterpret. And I think here's, here's one reason for that. Have you ever heard the phrase, um, when someone's passionate about Christ, we'll say, oh, they're really on fire for Jesus, right? We'll say that sometimes. They're on fire for Jesus. That's fine. I get what you mean. But the illustration that we're kind of putting on this text here is that if you're hot, how do you feel about Jesus? Oh, you love him. And if you're cold, well, how do you feel about Jesus? Oh, you can't stand him. Which means if you're lukewarm, how do you feel about Jesus? Eh, Take him or leave him. I'm apathetic. And so is that what we're saying here where Jesus says, well, I'd rather you love me or hate me, but since you're apathetic, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And we think, so it's better to hate him? Or you think of, you know, the idea of it was in his mouth, so he's, he's, the illustration, right? He's drinking this, and and evidently he can swallow the cold water where they hate him, but he spits out. Where they're that doesn't work. That's not biblical. That's not right. I don't think that's the right way to understand what Jesus is saying. Well, that's the reason I tried to give you some of that historical context about the city and their water. Jesus is absolutely using that reality of their city in this illustration. Remember, the hot water from Hierapolis had life-giving value. These hot springs had medicinal value. The cold water from Colossa had life-giving value. It was good for drinking. Both hot and cold are useful, life-giving, helpful. But lukewarm, that refers to this try from the city to bring in some of that hot water. And by the time it got to the end of that pipe, it was calcified, rotted, nauseating in this old, crusted. You drink some of that, you gag. You throw up. There's nothing life-giving about it. There's no value to it. And so Jesus really seems to be saying, I take a drink here of your worship to me, and it makes me want to throw up. Because there's nothing alive about it. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? 
And it's amazing to realize it's, it's not like, uh, let's just put it this way, they still call themselves a Christian church. It's not like they've become atheists or they've officially become uh, Zeus worshipers. But even as they're Christian in name, as we've seen, they no longer find him to be their treasure. And they love the things of their city and the things of their culture more than they love him. What do they say about themselves? I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. They have the wrong treasure. It's uh, amazing what Jesus says in verse 17. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I, have need, I need nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, it would, be, it would be an awful sight, wouldn't it, to see a man walking down the street who was poor, blind, and naked strutting about like he honestly believed he was rich, wise, and well-clothed. That would be like a monstrosity. It would be a tragedy. And Jesus says that's basically how you're working, church. You basically, it's basically how you're, you're working. And, you know, what are they valuing? What are they valuing? They're rich. They've prospered. Just like their city, right? There's a, there's a material comfort. There's a self-sufficiency. We've, we've worked hard. We've made it. We've arrived. And it's to the point well, later we're going to see Jesus say, I stand at the door and knock. Does it seem strange that Jesus is like an outsider trying to get in? They love the things of their culture more than they love him. That's what I think is happening. That's what lukewarm tastes like. They love the things of their city, of this world, more than they love him. Their treasures are wrong. They're off. I wonder where you can see this kind of thing taking place in our day. That could be a long conversation, couldn't it? So we'd look out on the church of America or the world and say, where do we see the church loving the things of the world, still calling themselves Christian, but not really loving Christ and what he's done? It could be a long conversation. Uh, one thing that comes to my mind is the prosperity gospel. Some people have said it's America's greatest export. I've done pastoral training overseas. I've had Christians tell me the biggest problem is not persecution. It's churches claiming to be Christian, preaching a gospel of prosperity that says if we just come to Jesus, he'll get us what we really want. Material wealth. A successful life. The achievement of life goals. I've known people who came to Jesus so that he would fix their marriage. And when their marriage got better, all of a sudden their interest in Jesus decreased. Or we come to Jesus to help us be good parents. Or all these things can be good. That money's not evil. We want good marriages. The question is not whether or not these things are good. The question is what do you love the most? And if we... Demote Jesus to a middleman to get us what we really want. Oh, we've demeaned him. We've despised him. And that's why, especially with the prosperity gospel, when you come to Christ, you can have money. I'm sure Jesus finds that nauseating. Nauseating. 
But we can think of other examples, and I spent some time thinking of other examples, but then I realized, you know what? Is it really that hard for you and me to discern problems in other people? <laughs> is, it really, is it really that hard for you and I to look out on our country or the culture and be like, ah, I see problems. <laughs> I find myself pretty good at that. You know what's a little more difficult? Do you see any of this in yourself? I mean, you have reasons, right? For why you love what you love in the way that you love them. But as Christians, we need to be able to say something like this because it's true. Hi, my name's Matt, and I'm a recovering idolater. And that's the nature of sin, isn't it? To love something more than we love God and his word and the Lord Jesus and what he's done. In fact, I think every time I sin, it's a mini version there of idolatry. I didn't think God was good. I didn't think his word was true. I replaced him with myself. And so, yeah, let's be discerning to a point and see where Christianity and our culture is working like this. But you know what? Your ultimate responsibility will not be all the other churches in America. Your ultimate responsibility will not be about how all the other people get it wrong or not. You know what your responsibility is? It's your heart for the Lord and your local church. And so we need to ask the Lord to show us where our loves look way too much like the loves of some of these movements in our world, in our culture, where Jesus and who he's done is not our ultimate treasure and something else is taking his place. And you know what? If you look hard enough, you'll see it in what you serve. You'll see it in your emotional life, your mental life. You'll see it. So let's pray. Jesus, show us. Rebuke us in your kindness. Tell us what you know about us. And that takes us to the calling. We see this in verses 18 to 19, the calling. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. I'm just going to pause there for a moment. We'll explain gold refined by the fire and white garments and all the rest. But really, the point is, I counsel to you to buy from who? Me. Buy from me. What does that mean? Find your treasure in me. This church is buying from the world around them. And Jesus is saying, come to me as the truth about treasure. Quit looking elsewhere. I'm the one who satisfies. Commentators say this is an allusion to Isaiah 55. Listen to what the Lord God said in Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. It's an incredible invitation. Come, everyone who what? Thirsts. Come to the what? Waters. You hear that? You're thirsty? I satisfy. You're longing? I satisfy. And to him who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Now, look at this question from the Lord God. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not, what? Satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me. Hear that your soul may live. I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David, 
Ah, friends, Jesus is the son of David, the promised king. He is inviting us in to satisfaction in him. Buy from me. Jesus says, buy from me refined gold. Well, what is gold? It's treasure. This treasure. What, it, what, what is it about refined gold? Well, that's the best of treasures. Treasure is what you love. And Jesus is saying, a pure love for me is the greatest treasure of all. Then Jesus says, buy from me white garments. And what does this mean? We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. I want to remember two really important things these garments symbolize with you. Jesus said, you know, he's, he's told this church they're naked. He says, buy from me white garments. What is this about? Well, let's see it. Look at Revelation 7, verses 13 to 14. Revelation 7, 13 to 14. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothes in white robes? And from where uh, have they come? Verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, do you, do you see what Jesus is saying then? Jesus calls himself the Lamb, and what does that symbolize? Well, it shows you, right? It's, it shows you the gospel, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He lived a perfect life pleasing to the Father, that Jesus was the substitutionary sacrifice. He died in the place for our sins, for our idolatries. And as we repent of our sin and trust in him, we're washed clean. This is blood that makes your garment white. What's the garment? It's the gift of his righteousness given to you through faith in him. A free gift of being clothed in Christ and what he's done. This robe is about a genuine trust in the gospel. What's Jesus saying to the church? Get your righteousness from me. Realize you aren't sufficient. You aren't rich in yourself and you need me and what I've done for you. Come to me as your treasure. Come to me as your salvation. The robes mean something else as well. Look at Revelation 19, 7 to 8. Revelation 19, 7 to 8. There the text says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Despite all their flaws, one day Jesus' people will look beautiful, like a bride coming down the aisle for, on her wedding day. And what does this mean? Did you see it? The fine linen is the what? The righteous deeds of the saints. Here's the truth. When we get our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when we realize he has taken our sin and given us his righteousness, the truth of the gospel, that heart that trusts in the gospel will then begin to have a life formed by the gospel. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. When we trust the gospel, we begin to find God's commands to be beautiful. Forgiveness is beautiful, isn't it? It's not easy, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
to forgive our enemy. Our culture doesn't always think it's beautiful. Our culture thinks, no, revenge is the way. But we know forgiveness is beautiful. And why do we know that? Jesus has forgiven us. Sexual faithfulness is beautiful. Our culture says, no way. It's a straitjacket. But we know it's beautiful. We know. Why? Because Jesus is faithful to us. He's the faithful husband. Even giving. Giving is beautiful. Wealth is great because we can provide and give. Giving is beautiful. Why do we know that? Jesus gave everything for us. It goes on and on. When a heart trusts the gospel, a heart finds living in accordance with the gospel to be beautiful, and indeed it is. Remember, this church is naked. They have nothing. They have the wrong treasure. They're no longer celebrating the gospel. They're no longer living in the light of the gospel. And Jesus is saying, come to me as your treasure. Come to me for your salvation. Come to me for your beauty. Then Jesus says, buy from me salve. Salve, remember the city was known for its I salve. And I think Jesus is thinking of the eyes of your heart. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus says, if, you're, if the light of your eye is not working, man, how, that's, that's trouble. I'm paraphrasing. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's this illustration, your heart has eyes. What does that mean? Well, your heart is what, you know, it, it finds things valuable. Your eyes, the eyes of your heart are how you interpret what is valuable. Your value system, what you live for, what you want. This church, they're blind. They're blind. In what way are they blind? They don't see what's truly valuable. They don't see it. Jesus says, come for me, buy from me, salve. I'll heal you. I'll adjust you. I'll let you see what's truly beautiful. I'll let you see I'm the truth, Jesus says, about treasure. I'll change how you see. I'll change what you love. So all the, Jesus says, right? Come and buy from me. I give the treasure. I clothe you. I heal your eyes. Come and buy from me. Remember that text, man. How can... Uh, how can poor, wretched, blind, naked people buy anything from Jesus who really owes them nothing but wrath and discipline? And what money are you going to use to buy something from Jesus? Remember again that passage in Isaiah, come buy from me without price. You know, the, the currency you really need here is a deep sense of your need for his mercy. The, the money that can get what Jesus is selling is humble repentance that says, have mercy on me. Look at what Jesus says here. This is what he's saying. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Repent. Turn to him with a zealous turning, a deep turning, a sense of need, saying, Jesus, I'm off, I'm wrong. Be my treasure, be my salvation, be my beauty, heal my eyes. And you know, we can come to him knowing this. Did you see this phrase at the beginning of verse 19? Those whom I, what? Love. This blows me away. 
This blows me away. This maybe is the most unfaithful church in all these letters. Um, there's not one encouragement towards them. Even, even another letter will be like, well, you still have a few who haven't gone, gone off the deep end. But no, this one, there's nothing here, but, but look at this phrase, verse 19, those whom I love. Jesus still loves them. He loves them. And that's the hope. We can come to him still, even as such broken, rebellious people, knowing his grace towards those who repent. Buy water, buy food without price. Come humbly, needy, looking for mercy, you'll receive it. Wow. Now we get to the consequence Well, Jesus has said it before. If they don't repent, they'll get spit out of his mouth. What does that mean? Well, it means they'll no longer be a legitimate church. They're they're rejected. They can no longer bear his name. He's done with them. Sends them away. Uh, we, We remember other things in the New Testament where Jesus says things like, Depart from me. I never knew you. It's very serious, very sober. The time is now for this church to turn to Christ. But they can do so in the context of this promise. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. I think this is another text that's a little bit easy to misunderstand and misuse. The way I've heard it most in my life is kind of an evangelistic plea to someone who hasn't known Christ before and, and the evangelist will say, well, Jesus stands and knocks at the door of your heart and you just need to let him in. Let's just ask ourselves again about the context of what's happening here. Is this somebody who has never heard the gospel before, hearing it for the first time and someone saying, consider Christ and, and let him into your heart? Is, is that the context of what's happening here? It's really not. What's the context of what's happening here? No, this is a local church that at one point maybe loved him in some way, at least claimed him, and is now in process of denying him, if not from the mouth, then in the heart and in the life. So it's not the idea that Jesus is kind of out there wandering looking for a place to land. No, the idea here is this is a king. A great master coming back to his own house. And he's wondering if his own people will be ready for him. Uh, it sounds just like Luke 12. Look at Luke 12, 35 to 37. This is what Jesus said. Luke 12, 35. Stay dressed for action. That sounds familiar here, doesn't it? Keep your lamps burning. Verse 36, be like men who are what? Waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So the idea is eager readiness. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. So I guess Jesus is asking this church, hey, are you you ready for me? Do you want to be the kind of church that makes me nauseated, that I spit out? 
Or are you eager for my presence? Are you ready for me to come back? Are you ready for fellowship? Because Jesus knocks on the door of his church, of his own house. How do we open it? What's it mean to open the door? Well, it's to respond to what he's already said. Come to him as our treasure. Come to him for salvation. Come to him for beauty. Come to him to heal our eyes. Be ready with a rich faith that longs for him, that loves him the most, that lives faithfully for him. And this is amazing. Isn't this promise amazing? Did you hear it? When he comes, when we're eager, when we open the door, he wants to fellowship with us. He wants to spread a lavish feast. And did you see this? What do do friends like to do, friends and family, when we get together, celebrate something? Nobody's like, hey, guys, let's have a treadmill party. No, we get together and we eat. Right? We, we feast. Isn't this something that all cultures understand? We, we eat together and we feast. And look what Jesus is saying. When you find me as your treasure, I will, I will feast you. I will, I will lavishly satisfy you to the point that, I mean, it's almost shocking. Jesus said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will serve them? Can you imagine this feast where Jesus is waiting on you? Generously, lavishly hosting you at his table? This is what it means to be rich. (laughs) This is the treasure. To be here for that. I think it starts now, right? It's a fellowship with Christ that we have. Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We have fellowship with him now. But, oh, we haven't haven't even yet seen the fulfillment yet, right? We're going to sit at the marriage feast as his bride, and he will serve us. That's treasure. That's satisfaction. Moreover, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Mm. What does it mean to conquer? It means to be faithful to Christ no matter the cost until the end. Either you die or he comes back. doesn't mean perfection, but it means you're faithful. You hold fast his word. You don't deny his name. Conquer. No matter the cost, conquer. Faithful through tribulation. And you can do that when he's your treasure. You will do that when he's your treasure. And if you do that, Jesus says, he will grant you to sit with him on his throne. Gosh. As he conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. How did Jesus conquer? I think it's important to realize this as we close. Jesus went through tribulation as a faithful witness. He went even to death, and through his death, he was vindicating his resurrection and ascended to the right hand and reigns now and forever. The cross to the crown. Jesus is saying, we conquer as he conquered. In fact, we are to be faithful witnesses as he was a faithful witness. In fact, we'll endure tribulation as he endured tribulation, not identically, but similarly, Before we get to the cross, or excuse me, before we get to the crown, we endure the cross. I think that's important because of 
our discussion this morning. Part of our cross is learning to lay down treasures that compete with Christ in our lives. I could tell you stories of this from my own life. Treasures I held to so deeply. And Jesus in his way said, you gotta let go of this. And it was painful to do so. And some of you listening, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's probably something in your life right now Jesus is bringing to mind where he says that is a counterfeit treasure and you have put it in the way of who I am to be to you. It is competing with my place in your life. Lay it down. And it feels like death to you to lay this down. You cannot imagine life without allegiance to this thing. And Jesus is saying to you, Lay it down. Die to yourself. Die to this treasure and trust me to satisfy you. And here's the promise. You conquer as I, as I conquered. I'll share my throne with you. I, I never hear of a king who shares thrones. <laughs> he's not saying he shares authority with you in the same way he has authority. I'm not saying that. But, but look at this generosity. Now, Jesus is no Grinch. What's he want to do? He wants to lavishly feast you, and he wants to sit, sit you with him on his throne. That at least means you have everything that you've ever needed. That at least means you have all the pleasure you can possibly have now and forever. It means you'll never regret laying down counterfeit treasures. He'll provide. He will satisfy. He's the truth about treasure. He is the treasure. So friends, what do you love most? Who are you serving? Is it Jesus? Does your treasure give you life so that you can be life-giving? Do you stand out as faithful to Christ? Are you buying your treasure from him? Are you trusting your heart to the gospel? Are you living a life that echoes the gospel? Has he healed your eyes so you can see what is truly valuable? May Jesus be the truth we believe about treasure. May we buy our gold from him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, please send your spirit to us to... Help us discern our own values. Help us discern our own loves. Help us to see where we are flirting with idolatry. And help us run to you, Lord Jesus, and repent. Help us believe that you are the truth about treasure. Help us to come to you and, and find satisfaction that we could never uh, earn on our own, but comes from you as a gracious gift. Let us look to your gospel. Let us live in the light of your gospel. Let us see things the way you see them. And let us be faithful through tribulation because we love you the most and we know that you have loved us. We can't wait to sit at your table and get the view from your throne until then, let us fellowship with you here and now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to be with you all. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. 
For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.